A reading from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. See what large letters I make when I am writing in my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Even the circumcised do not themselves obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. As for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one make trouble for me, for I carry the marks of Jesus branded on my body. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words that flow from my mouth uh, make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are this week concluding part one of our series, Kaleidoscope of Grace, as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Next week, Marianne will start part two as we look to the letter to the Colossians and how that reveals more of the kaleidoscope that is God's grace. But we are not finished with Galatians just yet. And today's passage is more than just Paul's gentle closing remarks. In fact, I'm not sure they're gentle at all. A quick recap for those who haven't heard the first two sermons in this series and a refresher for those who have. Paul writes this letter out of frustration and passion to the Christians in Galatia, speaking out against a teaching that they have received, which I heard described this week in a term that I really loved, Galatianism. What's Galatianism, you might ask? Well, putting requirements on belonging to the kingdom of God is Galatianism. And here in Galatia, in those times, the particular requirements that the teachers were putting on them was to be a proper follower of Jesus, you also had to keep all the Jewish laws, even if you weren't born or culturally a Jew. But particularly, they were focusing on the three big laws, keeping the Sabbath, the the food and purity laws, and as we heard in uh, the passage that Danny read for us uh, this morning, there was lots of talk about circumcision. Unfortunately, I think we still have a lot of what I would see as Galatianism floating around our church today. And I wonder if that has had an impact in the recent census data 
that shows that now only 43.9% of Australians would call themselves Christians, as opposed to 38.9% of Australians who say that they have no religion. Many of the people that I've run into in recent years who fall into that category of saying that they have no religion, it might come as a surprise to some of you, but to others maybe not. But I've found that these people are actually quite spiritual. And in most circumstances, they're very interested in what I do and why I do it. But as I hear their story, I'll often hear that part of the reason why they say they now have no religion is because they've had some sort of run-in with a version of Galatianism, either perceived or actually really experienced with a Christian, with a group of Christians, or maybe the institution of the church. Galatianism, in my mind, arises when we try to make God foot fit into our own mindsets, biases, prejudice, and preconceptions. And Paul would say, in this passage, Galatianism happens when we sow to our own flesh. It wouldn't be a great world if God was just like us. And that's, I think, what Galatianism has its root in. As Paul is finishing up this letter, he grabs the pen from the scribe and starts writing in his own hand. And this was actually a common practice of the time. If you had a scribe write a letter, you would personalise it, a little bit similar to today, how we might write it out on a computer but then print it out and sign our signature. This is Paul's signature. But it gave not just a personalisation but an emphasis to these final words. These final words are interesting. And at first pass, they almost seem contradictory to our theme of grace. As the old Savage Garden song said, I believe in karma, what you give is what you get returned. That kind of sounds a lot like what Paul is saying when he uses this imagery of you reap what you sow, wasn't it? But isn't grace undeserved favour? Shouldn't we expect to get returned what we have not given or reap what we have not sown? Or have we got grace a little bit wrong? This final section of Paul's letter to the Galatians is where the rubber hits the road. He's out of frustration and passion. He's told them exactly what he feels. But now, in this last section, this is what I want you to take with you into your daily lives. Paul's argued furiously against the teachers who said that the Jewish law is the gospel. And he says, it is not the gospel. The law is not the good news. And he also takes the time for a sneaky sledge and says, those guys who say it's the gospel, if you look at their lives, they're not really following the whole law themselves. They just want to uh, big note themselves by saying that they've converted you to their way of thinking. 
Paul is unequivocal in this and his other letters that the gospel is grace. What does that mean? Do we just sit back and let grace wash over us like we might be sitting on a warm summer's afternoon by the beachside as the the waves lap over us? Is that the image of grace that we should have? Just let grace upon grace come over us and we just bask in the glory of grace? I think not. Grace is dynamic. It is participatory. We receive grace to be moved by grace to become grace for others. How will those outside of the church know about grace if those within the church do not show grace to them? Because grace is a kaleidoscope, it's not static. It's not just one image or one experience or special words that we could say or pray at a particular point in our lives. Grace changes like a kaleidoscope does with every twist and turn that life takes. But I do wonder, has our image of and our understanding of grace become too rigid for the 38.9% to see grace in and through us and to be invited into it. It also makes me wonder how many of the 38.9% of Australians who say that they have no religion have actually been shown grace by the 43.9%. If you do the maths, there's more who say that they are Christian and who say they have no religion. So there should be more grace being shown in Australia by the Christian church. But is there? In my mind, there's no surer way to to redress the decline that our census shows than by showing others more grace. Particularly for those who don't believe, don't believe yet, or who might have believed and have stopped believing. Instead, I wonder whether our our default has become our version of Galatianism. Paul says, so let us not grow weary in doing what is right. Then immediately says, so then, whenever we have an opportunity, let's work for the good, not of ourselves, of all. But, that what we do we don't just do good to the people we know or we like or who go to our church or for those who we think deserve it that cheapens grace if that's our approach when the reality is that grace has been given to us at such a high cost One of the reasons that we can and should boast in the cross is that God did this for us. If you heard Elroy's uh, brilliant sermon last week, she uh, took us into C.S. Lewis's world. Um, Well, not to be outdone, 
this week, I want to take you into J.R.R. Tolkien's world. The classic Lord of the Rings character, Gollum, discovers the ring, but he holds onto it and won't let it out of his sight, and he won't use it for the greater good of others. And it ends up distorting and disfiguring him. The ring becomes my precious. Tolkien, who was great friends with uh, Lewis, um, was actually a devout Catholic. And so it wouldn't surprise me, uh, as there's many religious themes throughout his works, that as he was writing his famous line about the ring, whether he might not have had grace in mind, he wrote, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. Apologies for my crude appropriation, but I think it also works grace to rule them all, grace to find them, grace to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. But when we hold on to the precious gift of grace, but don't let it out of our sights like Gollum did, don't give it away to others, or put conditions on it, then that version of grace becomes distorted. We as Christians become disfigured into this version of Galatianism. Famous German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Grace costs. It gets to work and it produces. We are to sow grace and that will cost us. It's often hard work and people will regularly fail to acknowledge our gracious efforts. But that shouldn't stop us doing what is right. Showing grace, speaking grace, living like grace is the one thing that matters most. That grace is actually the good news not just for us, but for everyone. The difference between grace and karma is that what we sow is not reaped for our personal benefit. In the same way that God gave every part of God's self in Jesus for our benefit, we sow grace for the benefit of others. From a financial perspective, that's a horrible rate of return for us personally. 
but the rate of return on grace for the kingdom of God is supernatural. Now, when I use the term supernatural, don't get confused. In Paul's time, when the word supernatural was used, it was different to how we might look at it in 2022. They didn't think of science fiction, fantasy, magic, or make-believe. They thought of what was happening in the natural world, but more, bigger, better, faster. The things that can and do happen in God's natural order of things happen in a more pronounced way to the point where it can only be explained as God at work. The new creation that Paul is saying is everything is not a magical far-off land created by Tolkien or C.S. Lewis in the mind of the great storytellers of our time. The new creation is possible right here and right now. It's accessible, it's present because of the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus was the one pivotal moment in human history that has allowed this new creation to begin and continue throughout our future, in our present and into eternity. Grace makes a new creation possible now for everyone. I don't want to oversimplify this, but I kind of think that grace is God's superpower to save the world. And that power has been given to us. We are God's superheroes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I must admit that I have a bias here. I like superhero movies and and shows and cartoons growing up. And as a 50-year-old, I still like them. So forgive me for what I'm about to do. But to bring that saving grace to the world, whether that world says that they are a Christian or whether they're at the moment saying, I have no religion, thank you very much. We are given the power of grace. But instead of the power of invisibility, grace makes us more visible and will often leave us exposed and vulnerable. Instead of the power of super strength and doing things with ease, grace will wear us out and leave us exhausted. Instead of the power of reading minds, grace will leave us wondering if people actually noticed what we did at all. Instead of the superpower of time travel, so that we can go back and change the past, grace leaves us smack in the middle of the very messy present. While a superhero might draw attention to themselves like a warning beacon so that bad guys don't think that they could get away with anything, grace actually draws attention away from ourselves and to the cross of Christ. And this is the best bit. The benefit of that is for the bad guys. Grace 
is confounding. Grace is infuriating. Grace is really, really, really hard. But grace is amazing. Grace isn't just God's job. It's the job of the whole church. And as we have said in the past in the Anglican Church, Ravina, church is everyone's job. So guess what? Grace is everyone's job. We don't see the full kaleidoscope of grace unless everybody is committed to the work of grace. So we get to Paul's final words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. I'm not sure that these words are passive or gentle. Or the end, a nice conclusion to a nice letter. They are a call to action for the Christians in Galatia. And they are a call to action for the church today. So, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's get to work. Loving God, as we rest in your grace, help us to be moved from the experience of that undeserved favour that we receive from you. Might we be bold enough to show that undeserved favour in the way that we encounter the people we meet this week. Whether they're part of our tribe, part of the people that we interact with, or whether they might be strangers who might believe in something completely different to us, or not sure what they believe at all. Might our encounters and our relationships help them to believe one thing, that grace is real, that you are working in and through us. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue to